Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the AMR Studio after this short summer hiatus that we had for a month. We are back with an interview that Jenny did back in 7th of July with Dr. Jernigan from the CDC. And you are going to be able to listen to some of the innovative approaches that the CDC is taking to deal with AMR pathogens, in particular in the hospital environment. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to this month's interview. We have with us today Dr. Jernigan from the CDC. Could you please introduce yourself? Sure. First of all, thanks for very much for having me to address this important issue. My name is Dr. John Jernigan. I am currently chief of what's known as the Epidemiology Research and Innovations Branch in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the CDC. Our mission of our branch is to address knowledge gaps that are essential to prevention of healthcare-associated infections and, in particular, antibiotic-resistance infections through research, surveillance, evaluation, and, and innovation. We work with extramural researchers through extramural research uh, platforms. We fund a fair amount of, of research with academic partners around the United States and around the world, actually and also have an intramural uh, epidemiologic research group that works with surveillance data and other data sources that we have internally. Talking about the collaboration within the, the CDC, so it seems like you bring a lot of the research and kind of putting it into the more, especially medical settings when we're talking about hospital-acquired infections and whatnot. Uh, there's got to be kind of a level of, I don't know, conversion maybe is the right word, of taking academic results and putting them into practice, that has to be a bit difficult. It is It is difficult. And there are several parts of our, our division that work more primarily on implementation issues mm -hmm. than our particular branch, but we do work closely in collaboration with them. At the CDC, we actually work not only directly with hospital partners and other healthcare facility partners, but also we have relationships with health departments in all of the 50 states, in the last 10 or 20 years, healthcare-associated infections wasn't really on the radar screen of, of local health departments, state and local yeah. health departments. And largely through funding through CDC, we have created in all 50 states divisions within state and local health departments that focus on this. And so a lot of the implementation work we do is in partnership through funding and support to those local health departments. But you're right, translating evidence-based practice or scientific evidence into practice and actually implementing that at the patient's bedside is, yeah. is a continual challenge. We were talking a bit about you know, the translation between scientific evidence into evidence-based practice. So you have seem to have a medical background, if I understand right. That, that's correct. Yeah, that, that must be helpful, I'm thinking, to translate in this kind of research. So could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into Absolutely. Yes, I am a physician. After my medical school training, I did a residency in internal medicine, mm -hmm. got interested in infectious diseases, and did specialized training in infectious diseases, a fellowship. Mm -hmm. And my research focus during my fellowship was in healthcare-associated infections and developed a special interest in antimicrobial-resistant healthcare-associated infections at that mm -hmm. time. So after I finished my training in infectious diseases, I actually, my initial job after my fellowship training was at Emory University Hospital. I became the hospital epidemiologist. And I was in charge of the HAI prevention program and antimicrobial resistance program, antibiotic stewardship, et cetera. So had a number of years of experience in trying to implement that in the confines of my own facility. And Emory University is literally two blocks down from the CDC in Atlanta. And in the course of that work at Emory University, I had collaborative relationships with investigators in the CDC in this division. And after several years of working with them, had the opportunity to move from Emory down the street to work in public health so that I could 
have an impact not only within the confines of, of my particular program, my particular facility, but have more of an impact nationally and globally, you know, on the exact same issues. Still hold my faculty appointment at Emory as an adjunct faculty member, have maintained my clinical experience, but now wear both hats as both an uh, infectious disease clinician and also public health official as well. From what I understand, it's very important when trying to change things in a healthcare setting, especially in hospital settings, to really know how they work in practice. Absolutely. It's a very special environment and it's a very delicate system that it's very hard for somebody without firsthand experience to go in and kind of change things, which is, of course, what's required when we're talking about healthcare associated infections and prevention and treatment and everything like that. It feels like a great experience to have as a background for somebody who's, like you said, wearing double hats now and working with this on a more national level to have that personal experience where you know more about how it is to work in the hospital setting. It's true. Um, You know, at CDC, we make science-based recommendations on how to prevent healthcare-associated infections, how to prevent transmission of antimicrobial resistance in healthcare settings. And with every recommendation we make, I have to think to myself, okay, if I'm on the receiving end of this as a practicing physician, how would I implement this? Is it practical? Does it really make any sense? Or does it not make sense in terms of the natural flow of caring for patients in that setting? Secondly, if I'm, say, a hospital epidemiologist and I get guidance from CDC that here are prevention practices, everyone in the facility needs plays a part in that. So how do I make that happen across the whole institution? What levers within the institution, within the organizational leadership of the institution, do I need to pull to make that happen? Does that make sense? Hmm. All these things are very beneficial when we think about translating what we're learning from the science into actual prevention at the patient's bedside. So you you obviously work with the CDC on innovating and trying to improve the situations with these healthcare-associated infections and new innovative approaches to dealing with antimicrobial resistance. I mean, that's a central part of these infections. But could you tell us in general a bit about how the CDC tried to prevent these sorts of healthcare-associated infections and specifically AMR? There are a number of approaches, you know, more broadly in terms of the Mm -hmm. approach to AMR. We take a number of approaches, as I've mentioned. We fund partners externally to do innovation and implementation of preventive activities. We provide and produce guidance for how to prevent healthcare-associated infections in general, and also specifically AMR healthcare-associated infections. We do innovation research. One of the innovations we are looking to support even more is uh, using public health data to build data platforms that can inform vaccine research. We -hmm. think that AMR vaccines are a promising approach. We do work looking across the One Health spectrum because antimicrobial resistance is not just in humans, it's also in animals and agriculture as well. And there's obviously some relationship there that we're studying and working on. We fund lab networks across our country that work on early identification, uh, using innovative approaches like whole genome sequencing to look for novel resistance elements and how they're spreading in our country, et cetera, and so forth. And so sort of more broadly, we have a whole portfolio of different approaches to AMR. Mm. But one of the innovative strategies within, you know, a much larger portfolio is this idea of decolonization therapy as a means to prevent and control AMR infections. We think it's an underappreciated approach in We're working to try to nurture more attention to this, more investigation, more research, more development, because we think it could potentially have a big impact. So why is this decolonization aspect or like this uh, concept of decolonization? Why is this so important? I mean, most people think of antimicrobial resistance, they think about treatment. So can you explain a little bit about why this is so important, the decolonization aspect? Right. So there are two main reasons. One is that colonization is important in the pathogenesis of infection, and particularly mm-hmm. in healthcare-associated infections. Usually, you don't get an infection unless you're colonized with an organism first. So if you can prevent or reduce colonization, one can prevent or reduce the risk of healthcare-associated infection. And two, transmission mm. is an important driver of uh, antimicrobial resistance in HAI. So going back to the colonization part, to unpack that a little bit more. 
we have lots of evidence that suggests that healthcare-associated infections are most often caused by pathogens that the patient is carrying first. So they come into, let's say, an ICU, and there's lots of evidence of this. And when you look for things that they're colonized with, that they're carrying on their body, and then look at what infections happen subsequent to that, quite often they're caused by the bugs that they're carrying when they come into the ICU. This is true, not only ICU, it's true in cancer patients. We know that there's very good studies that show that um, more than 80% of episodes of Staph aureus bacteremia are caused by the strain that the person is carrying with them in advance of that bacteremia. Same with surgical side infections. Mm. These are good examples of, you know, you can carry a dangerous pathogen on you and not get sick until it ends up in the wrong place at the wrong time, say a surgical site, as you said, or in the patient's bloodstream, which is much easier that that cross happens in a hospital setting. That's true. And there's lots of high-risk stuff that goes on in a hospital. They have devices that are going through their skin, through their nose, through their mouth, their surgical incisions, their catheters in the bladder. All these can serve as avenues for entry of organisms that are might otherwise live and grow in harmless places, like on your skin or in your nasal mucosa or in your mouth. They can get into sterile body sites where they can uh, wreak havoc and cause uh, yeah. you know great damage, et cetera. So there's that evidence. It's also true that if you colonize with certain pathogens, bad actors, it actually increases the risk of infection. Mm -hmm. So we know that persons, for example, who are colonized with extended spectrum beta-lactamase-producing enterobacteriales are at increase of subsequent urinary tract infection and subsequent surgical site infections. And also, it's not just the presence of the organism. There's evidence that the burden of colonization, Mm -hmm. the amount of bacteria that you're colonized with makes a difference. There's evidence from long-term acute care hospital residents that the relative abundance of carbapenemase-producing Klebsiella pneumoniae is associated with the risk of subsequent bloodstream infections. The higher the burden, the higher your subsequent risk of infection. Also true with vancomycin-resistant enterococci in cancer patients. So it's also about the balance with uh, what you maybe call a healthy microbiota, either in the skin or in the gut. Absolutely. I sort of talked a little bit about how colonization is important in the pathogenesis. Yeah. And the second point is that transmission is an important driver of HAI. So mm-hmm. it's important to talk about how antibiotic resistance emerges. A lot of people think mm-hmm. if you take a bacteria that's susceptible and you bombard it with antibiotics, it will somehow become resistant. That's really not the way it usually works. Antibiotic exposure doesn't generally turn susceptible organisms into resistant ones. Usually what happens is the presence of antibiotics selects for resistant strains that are already there, that are already present and are on the person. And those strains, how did they become resistant? Well, maybe through random genetic mutation, maybe through acquisition of resistance genes from other bacteria in in their microbiota, or they acquired the resistant strains through transmission from other people, either directly mm-hmm. or, in, or, or indirectly. So there is this concept that certain strains, we, we, we know that important uh, resistance problems often result from transmission of highly fit clonal strains. Yeah. Lots of examples of this. There's healthcare-associated MRSA in the United States anyway, is very much dominated by clonal group USA you know, 100. So that's a something that's very successful in that environment. So basically, Absolutely. very successful at causing infections in the hospital environment. That's correct. And in most MRSA infections in the United States, at least still, are caused by this strain or, or derivatives of this strain. Yeah. Community MRSA, different, uh, primarily associated with clonal group USA 300. And it actually emerged very rapidly in the United States in the early part of you know this century, mm-hmm. um, really quite remarkable how through transmission, it disseminated across the United States very quickly. Lots of other examples. So a lot of our major resistance problems, particularly the ones associated with healthcare, are associated with transmission of these special strains, if you will, that hold two important properties. One is they're resistant Mm -hmm. to antibiotics. So when people are exposed to antibiotics, they're selected for. And two, those strains usually are born when the genetic resistance elements find their way into or are acquired by susceptible strains 
that have certain characteristics that then made them particularly adept and successful at colonization, transmission, or even causing infection in people. Mm -hmm. So you have this sort of perfect storm of these highly fit strains that are good at transmission and colonization that are married with, if you will, genetic resistance elements that create sort of a, this, you know, superbug type thing that under antibiotic pressure proliferates tremendously. So the burden increases on the patient, which increases the risk of transmission, et cetera, and so forth. So back to the question of why colonization is important. So infected and colonized people in healthcare settings in particular serve as a major reservoir of transmission of these strains. So therefore, if you could eliminate or reduce this reservoir of transmission by decolonizing or at least reducing the burden of colonization in the patient, you could reduce onward transmission. Mm -hmm. And this may be especially important for AMR, resistant pathogens commonly associated with healthcare. And I also want to say something very importantly. There's modeling evidence to suggest that from the public health perspective, the indirect benefit resulting from this prevention of onward transmission may be much greater than the direct benefit to the treated patient themselves. Yeah, I was going to say, it makes it two parts. It's You're helping this, the individual who's colonized, you're reducing their risk, but there's also reduced risk of anyone in their proximity who might get exactly. colonized, they might get a transmission to them, basically. And the modeling suggests that that indirect benefit through preventing of transmission, the protection that is afforded to the other people in the ICU or in the hospital who don't get treated at all, probably dwarfs the benefit to the treated population themselves. Some of the Mm -hmm. modeling work that's been done suggests that it may be an order of magnitude greater benefit when you consider the indirect benefit compared to the direct benefit. And this is a problem for those who are interested in developing antibiotics or, or agents that decolonize because, at least in our country, you have to show direct benefit to the person who is treated. Yeah, I was about to say this must be difficult in a regulatory perspective as to show, like, it doesn't really fit in the antibiotic framework of you test a patient and are they healthier, basically, but one parameter or another. But the upside that I feel is there's, there is still the benefit to the, the individual. Absolutely. And being decolonized, there, there's definitely a clear benefit. That's right. The theoretical ways in which decolonization can help is it reduces the risk uh, in the colonized patient who receives the treatment from transitioning from just colonization, where the bug's not causing them any harm, to infection. So you reduce the burden on the patient, you decolonize them, decrease the risk that they're going to develop an infection from that organism. So that's the direct benefit. But again, if the burden of colonization is eliminated or decreased, they're less likely to transmit it to others. If you think about it, one of the reasons that the indirect benefit is so much better is because they're, think of generations of transmission. Yeah. If one transmission happens, then that person who acquires it can then transmit it to others, maybe several others. And through multiple generations, that grows exponentially. So that from one transmission, there are many transmissions, many colonizations, and many infections, all that could be averted if you had done a better job at preventing transmission in the first place. I feel like this ties in, especially since a lot of people had vaccines on their mind lately with COVID and everything like that. This is very similar in a way to the concept of vaccination as a way to, I mean, you, there's the benefit to the individual of not getting whatever infection you're vaccinated towards, but also the benefit of not transmitting it further. So we often, in the framework we use when communicating about vaccination in this current pandemic we're still in, it's often been about not just protecting you, but protecting people around you. So I wonder, uh, is there any sort of overlap between the regulatory process, I guess, for decolonization agents and vaccines? Well, the way that vaccines are usually approved is through, you know, randomized controlled trials where they, in fact, are looking at the benefit to the individual who got the vaccine. So that's how they receive their FDA approval. Yeah. It's not the similar for decolonization? Well, it can be. It's more difficult and complicated, particularly in healthcare environments, to do a randomized controlled trial to show the benefit. And why is that? Well, one of the reasons is when we talk about colonization and its role in causing infection, it can be a very long process. For some of these multidrug-resistant organisms, colonization can last for months, if not years. And sometimes the adverse event that 
results from becoming colonized, i.e. an infection, mm-hmm. might happen months or years later, which makes it very difficult to study sometimes yeah. in randomized controlled trials. That's a good point, yeah. But if we consider it might be easier to show benefit at a population level. Mm-hmm. Let's say, for example, if we wanted to design a study for decolonization, and this has actually been done, what if we you know, randomize the intervention not to individuals, but to populations that are at high risk of infection? Let's say ICU patients. And we measure not only infections that happen that are averted in the treated individuals, but the infections that are averted in their neighbors who are also mm-hmm. hospitalized in the ICU at the same time. There are things like this that have been done. There's a famous trial, the Reduce MRSA trial uh, that Susan Huang led, where they looked at hospital ICUs in the United States and they randomized them mm-hmm. to a decolonization approach for Staph aureus and other bugs, a combination yeah. of using international mupirocin and chlorhexidine bathing versus not essentially, and saw a big benefit in the intervention group. Now, we can't dissect how much of that was direct benefit to the patients or indirect benefit. And it's also a little complicated because everybody, uh, in one of the arms anyway, everybody got treated yeah, regardless of their colonization status. So it's a little bit difficult to unpack. But we think from a regulatory standpoint, we need to, we would like to work, and we are in discussions with FDA about can we envision a pathway for FDA approval that does take that indirect population benefit into account? And are there study designs that we can envision that capture that indirect benefit and capture those population-based outcome measures? And can we envision a way in which we could gain approval for these things based upon that? And we think if we can, this will nurture more interest from investigators and industry to delve further into this whole idea of decolonization. That has not really been a fruitful area for drug developers in recent times because There's really only one agent that I'm aware of that has been approved by FDA specifically for decolonization, and that's intranasal mupirocin. And that was a long time ago. And I think there's been discussion about, well, if we do that again, we have to show real clinical benefit. And we think that that might be easier to do if we study it from the population's perspective rather than the individual perspective for the, the reasons that I've mentioned. I should say that we are co-hosting with FDA a workshop, a public workshop, to discuss this issue, to discuss the potential benefit, where we are with current status of, of decolonizing agents, et cetera, and to discuss some of the barriers that exist and how we might overcome those. So we're hoping to draw a little more attention to the issue and hopefully nurture some further interest and maybe inspire investigators in the industry to start taking this up and moving the field forward a little bit. So on that note, you know, what, what, what do you feel is needed to bring this forward? Or what is the CDC kind of hoping from that sort of work? What, what's your ideal next step? <laughs> I, I think... First of all, we'd like to raise awareness of the idea that this potential huge indirect benefit resulting from decolonization therapy or pathogen reduction therapy, the huge indirect benefit resulting from the impact on transmission, mm-hmm. and for industry and academia to see a way forward for product development mm-hmm. that could stimulate pursuit of more research and, and development. Secondly, I think we need to work with FDA to get our heads together to see if we can envision the most feasible pathway to approval for such agents, including this Mm -hmm. idea of study designs that take into account the population-based benefit, which accounts for Mm -hmm. not only the direct benefit to the treated patients, but the indirect benefit to those who may not be treated. So these are the things that I think are needed to sort of get the ball rolling. And then it's up to the the genius of you know the academic investigators out there who are experts in the microbiome or experts in small molecule development, uh, who are experts in topical antiseptics, et cetera, mm-hmm. to think about new and creative ways that could achieve the ends that we're looking for. Isn't it hard to achieve decolonization? I mean, it's not as easy as just killing like an antibiotic is relatively somewhat asterisk here, but straightforward, you kill bacteria. but What's the challenge with decolonization, especially in hospital settings? So there's been a lot of work, mainly with Staph aureus, because Mm -hmm. we have this approved agent. 
there's been a lot of work looking at how successful that is and and decolonizing patients. And I want to pause here for a moment and talk a little about definitions. Decolonization, when we think about that, most people think that's the actual elimination or inactivation or death of the colonizing organism. So it's not there on the patient anymore, and it won't be there you know, ever again, or at least for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. That is very difficult to do, especially in healthcare settings where people have artificial you know, devices going through their skin into their bloodstream system. You know, It's very hard to eradicate those organisms and to decolonize there. When we use the term decolonization here, we're talking about sort of a, a broader concept. Mm-hmm. You may not have to totally eradicate the organism to have an impact. There's also the concept of just reducing the burden of the pathogen. Remember before I mentioned that there's evidence that it's not just the presence of the pathogen, but sometimes the amount of the pathogen on the patient increases the risk of an infection. So if we could decrease the amount, even if we aren't totally eradicating it, we might be able to have big impact. Secondly, there may be periods of defined risk and healthcare in which if you could just decolonize or suppress or reduce pathogen burden during that period of time, that may have the most impact. For example, if someone's going in for surgery, mm-hmm. we're really most interested in protecting them in that perioperative period, you know, from that time when the incision's made to the postoperative period, et cetera, to their incision heals. And if you could just sort of reduce or suppress colonization during that time when they're at highest risk of infection, it might be okay to if their colonization sort of recurs later on when they're at home, when they don't have these high-risk devices in them that put them at risk, when they're outside of these highly connected networks in a healthcare facility where transmission can occur, et cetera. Because like you said, it's not necessarily like that the bacteria exists, it's the when and the where. Correct. And the amount of the bug. It may be, even if we can't totally eliminate or eradicate it, if we can bring it down to much lower levels, even during an important period of time that's high risk, Mm -hmm. that probably would make a huge difference. So you've mentioned a couple of examples, I think, already, but how much proof is there that this works, that reducing the pathogen burn, if we say that, instead of purely decolonizing, that that helps prevent infections? Like you said, it's a long time span that we're talking about when we talked about regulatory issues. Yeah. But you said there's one existing that has that one? There are several randomized trials, mostly dealing with Staph aureus, since there has been an FDA-approved product for Staph aureus decolonization, which is Pearson. A lot of this work has been led by Susan Huang out of University of California, Irvine. Mm -hmm. There's the Reduce MRSA trial that I mentioned that looks at ICU patients. There's another trial called the ABATE trial that looks at non-ICU patients. There's a similar trial called Project Protects that looks at nursing home residents. There's a study that looks at patients undergoing surgery, several studies in that way that that all show some benefit from mm-hmm. decolonization of, of staph aureus or reducing the burden of staph aureus colonization. The agents that they use are already FDA approved, but none of these designs have been used for FDA approval of, of other agents. And these may be candidate study designs to explore other agents. When you talk about decolonizing agents, what kind of products are you talking about? Because if I understand correctly, you don't really want them to have antibiotic properties because that contributes to resistance. You're not really targeting resistance. You're targeting their ability to colonize. So when we're looking at development of new agents mm-hmm. that are able to decolonize or suppress colonization, some of the desirable attributes would be, number one, that they have a limited uh, body site distribution. Yeah, We'd prefer that they don't go to places in the body they don't need to be. Yeah, you're targeting something you basically know where it is. Right. Like, for example, Staph aureus, we know the main body site that's harboring, although it's really not the only one, but is the anterior nares. And so that's mm-hmm. what the logic behind an internasal mupiracin. If we're talking about a agent that colonizes the gut, we want something that maybe acts in the gut, but stays in the gut. It's not absorbable yeah. and goes anywhere else in the body. So that's one property that's important. Another property would be to have pharmacokinetics such that it achieves levels high enough so that it doesn't select for resistant agents, so that you overwhelm the bacteria so that you kill all the bacteria and you're not sort of killing just the susceptible ones and actually giving rise to a worse resistant problems. You are targeting to kill the bacteria. That's the ideal. That's the ideal. Mm -hmm. But if we could suppress it without 
selecting for more resistant forms of bacteria, that would be mm. acceptable as well. And another important component is we need to leverage the innate ability of our natural microbiome, our natural microbiota, yeah. to protect us against pathogens. Our microbiome does that naturally. Mm -hmm. And we think one of the best approaches to decolonization may be either to preserve and protect our natural microbiome because it has mm -hmm. inherent properties that protect us, gives us colonization resistance. There's the concept of colonization resistance. The natural bacteria that live in and on our bodies can help protect from a pathogen that is not inherent to us yeah. from taking foothold and growing and just keeps it out in the first place. So protecting our natural microbiome, let's say in the context of antibiotic use, is an important strategy here. We, we include that under the loose umbrella of decolonization. Or if your microbiome has been disrupted through antibiotic therapy or some other therapy, are there agents that can restore the normal microbiome and restore those inherent colonization resistance. Then you're talking about specific agents that kind of promote the growth of the natural microbiome. You're not talking about, for example, fecal transplants or that sort of thing, if I understand right. In fact, that certainly is. I mean, in terms of okay. in terms of the microbiome, there are we talk about microbiome protectants. Mm -hmm. Protect the microbiome, let's say, in the face of antibiotic exposure. Mm -hmm. And there are some of those already in development. There's a product that is being developed in Europe, and I'm not sure if it's approved yet or not, but it's basically a form of activated charcoal, and charcoal has the property of absorbing chemicals, absorbing antibiotics, et cetera, and so forth. And what this group has cleverly done is put basically activated charcoal in a capsule that is taken by the patient, and the capsule makes it so that it is not released until it gets into the large intestine, okay. where a lot of antibiotics sort of live, and that's where you know, the large component of our gut microbiota lives. Mm -hmm. And if antibiotics uh, are excreted there, then, and that's where a lot of damage is done mm -hmm. in terms of wreaking havoc on our microbiome. Well, if you could co-administer this product with antibiotics when you're getting antibiotic therapy, and this charcoal is released and it could absorb and inactivate the antibiotics in the large intestine, it could protect the natural bacteria that are there. So you maintain mm -hmm. and preserve your normal microbiota so that you don't become colonized with VRE or CRE or ESBL producing uh, interbacterialis. Which often come in when the yeah. microbiome has been disrupted somehow. So right. you're kind of not giving them the chance from the and, start. And there are also other products that are in development that actually release enzymes, beta-lactam enzymes that chew up antibiotics in, in the large intestine. So again, the same idea that they're preserving the microbiome. And there may be other other ways to protect yeah. the microbiome that nobody's thought of yet. It's definitely a, an arena for creativity, if you really Absolutely. think about how these bacteria work. Absolutely. So that's how you protect a microbiome that's already healthy. But what if your microbiome has already been really disrupted by antibiotics? Well, that's when we get into the era of microbiome restoratives. Well, mm -hmm. fecal microbiome transplant would be, you know, the sort of prototype. Yeah. That's one way to do it. There are lots of problems with that, as you might imagine. Yeah. But then there is evidence that after receiving an FMT, you actually can eradicate or decrease the amount of pathogens, including antimicrobial resistant pathogens that reside there. So it is a form of decolonization of the gut microbiota, if you will. Mm. But there are also groups that are working on alternatives to FMT, such as designer probiotics that are made of a consortium of bacteria that we think the producers of these think are sort of the keystone bacteria that if taken and if received in the large intestine, can then restore and outcompete the pathogens and restore disrupted microbiota. So there's a lot of work to be done there that we think can be very helpful. So that's a few strains of bacteria, then like a combined basically dose of bacteria that they're saying these can introduce the right microbiome environment to produce a healthy microbiome. Absolutely. Yes, that's that's the idea. I'm assuming it's not that they're supposed to be the only ones there, but those kind of starting it out that set the scene, as you will, for creating a healthy. You know, these researchers, and I'm not an expert in this area, but it's believed that there are certain species that are critical mm -hmm. to maintaining the healthy microbiome. Yeah. Not only those specific species, but the ones that 
the other ones that exist that are healthy and normally there, et cetera. And so a lot of people are working on that. So in terms of the microbiome, we include, you know, either restoring or preserving that, we include in this whole idea of decreasing pathogen burden or decolonization. In fact, we think that may be one of the more fruitful areas for further investigation and development. Also, other approaches might be phage therapy. You know, their phages can be very species specific. If we could come up with phages that are specific to bacterial pathogens in, in which antimicrobial resistance plays a big role, that could be very fruitful, either single phages or combinations of phages. Yeah. And there's lots of room for further innovative approaches. If investigators, again, see the see the value and see a way forward that it could actually find its way to approval and use. It's very complicated when, I, when you get to thinking about it, all the levels that could be in decolonization agents. It's, it's very broad. It is broad. It is very broad and complicated. But right now, it's, it's something that people aren't really thinking hard about because of these issues we've been talking about, of not being able to see the pathway for approval, the pathway for use, et cetera, and so forth. So that's yeah. one of the things we're trying to raise awareness for. So there's clearly a lot of interesting things to think about with decolonization agents. It's, like we said, very broad and big. But turning this back to AMR research, your work is clearly relevant for AMR research. I mean, we're seeing you reduce infections, you reduce treatment. You, these are especially very resistant infections most of the time. So what do you, with your work field right now, see is missing from AMR research, aside from maybe then more interest in this particular topic of decolonization? Well, I think we need more work on vaccines for AMR Mm -hmm. pathogens. Uh, There's a lot of that going on. I think we need to understand more from the One Health perspective about AMR in agriculture and how that interacts with human disease. Mm -hmm. I think we need to enhance our surveillance activities and bring you know new advances in genomic sequencing into those mm-hmm. those efforts so we better understand not only transmission of particular bacterial strains but also particular genetic elements yeah etc and so forth i think there's lots to be done in understanding our microbiome how it works how we can better protect it how can we restore damaged microbiome we're interested in innovations in surveillance, not only on the, as I mentioned, on the genomic size, but use of wastewater, for example, mm-hmm. to help guide interventions. We're interested in innovative approaches to antibiotics use and stewardship. We're also very interested in regional control of antibiotic resistance in the healthcare setting uh, based upon the premise that there are data to suggest that multidrug resistant organisms often spread in a region through movement of patients between healthcare facilities. There's a very a lot of that that goes on. Mm. And colonized and infected patients can carry MDROs from one facility to another. And we have very good data on how patients move within a network like that. Yeah. We want to better utilize that information to help target interventions, maybe in specific facilities that could have indirect benefit across an entire region. So that's a mm. that's an example of many things that we think are fruitful for further investigation. Yeah, I just want to say thank you again for taking the time to talk to us. It was really interesting from my side to talk about decolonization agents. I find them super interesting. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Uh, It's a topic that we think is very important, and we're delighted to have the chance to talk about it with you. Oh, thank you very much again. Thank you. Welcome back, everyone. So, Ava, what did you think about this interview? Hi, Jenny. Thank you for this great interview. I have to say that uh, I learned a lot in this interview. <laughs> and I also think that you guys did a very good job in one of the key things that Dr. Jerningan was aiming for, which is bringing awareness on the topic of how important decolonization is and might be for patients uh, in the U.S. and all around the world. I kind of had the idea, you know, that we want to prevent people to get infected with bugs that they carry you know you basically are colonized with something and also that you know if you're colonized with something that bug might end up somewhere else and that we have several approaches to these in some places they might screen for people being colonized and they might take care of them in a different way and also we might use antibiotics in a preemptive measure like as prophylaxis that's a way that we use you know 
antibiotics before an infection happens, especially in a hospital setting. But I think you guys really did a good job of explaining why this is particularly important, that we have things that are targeted, that are specific, and that can help with the burden of the colonization of these particular pathogens that they are not only resistant, but they seem to also have characteristics that makes them better to transmit to other patients and to create infections in those patients in those situations. So I think for the one of the main goals of uh, Dr. Jerningham, which was to bring awareness of this, I think the interview was really, really great. Yeah, I was, um, I've kind of always been a little bit interested in decolonizing agents and antivirulence, which I often kind of tie together, maybe a little incorrectly, but I hadn't really grasped, and I, I think it's clear from the interview, I hadn't really understood exactly what decolonizing agents were, what can be included as decolonizing agents, how broad of a con concept this is, and uh, a lot of the you know, struggles with it. I mean, we talked some about the the regulation issues, which like I thought about, but it didn't really cross my mind when we were thinking about this. Um, we were talking about the benefit of not transmitting to other patients. So not just the patient taking the decolonizing agents, but the benefit of those around them, especially in a hospital setting, how much this benefit that hadn't really crossed my mind before. So it was a really interesting interview. I mean, very intense. There's a lot in this interview, <laughs> uh, a lot of information, but it's, it was very great to get this update and to get a better understanding of what these agents are and what the, the goals of this kind of work is. Mm -hmm. Also to mention that you guys talked about the regulatory issues and how difficult it is. And I think it's really important that the CDC as bringing these initiatives forward is working hand to hand with the FDA to try to find ways that these things can be analyzed and study and then brought forward for regulation and into market. So Dr. Jernigan mentioned that the CDC working with the FDA on setting up a workshop to talk in particular about these issues. And this workshop is going to take place on August 30th of this year. So anybody of you that is in the U.S. and are interested in learning a little bit more about this, we are leaving a link in the show notes about this upcoming workshop. And yes, you say the interview was intense. It was packed with information. So I don't think there is much more that we can say or comment about it. It was pretty self-explanatory, a lot of the things you guys talked. I also really liked that uh, he mentioned the role of AMR vaccines and vaccines in general to prevent yeah. colonization and transmission, obviously, as well. And we have a little um, note on our news section later that specifically is about AMR vaccines. So this is very timely and very important as well to talk not only about these very direct agents that might work with decolonizing or reducing the burden of particular pathogens in the patients as well yeah i think with this we can move on to our new section for this month which we are bringing two um, different papers well interesting papers and one of them which i'm really particularly proud of so see you at the news see you Welcome to the new section of this uh, 40th episode that we have today. 40 <laughs> regular episodes, which is crazy. First, we're going to start with a paper that brings to us a proof of concept that can be really, really interesting and important, especially in low-resource settings. And it has to do with the testing of antibiotic susceptibility in particular. Jenny, can you tell us a little bit more and the details about this uh, very recently published article? Absolutely. So the paper is titled Multiplexed Paper-Based Assay for Personalized Antimicrobial Susceptibility Profiling of Carbapenem-Resistant Enterobacteriales Performed in a Rechargeable Coffee Mug, <laughs> which uh, I really loved. You, you suggested this article, and I just loved the title, and I was like skimming it, and it was like, Rechargeable Coffee Mug. <laughs> yeah, that was that's an interesting uh, part of it as well. Yeah, definitely. It was published in Nature Scientific Reports. It's an open access article, so anyone can read it, can get more details on it published on uh, the 14th of July this year. So it's very, like I said, very recent. So basically, this is a continuation of a previous paper they looked before, looking at a paper-based microfluidic device. So basically just a paper where they kind of make these little wells on it. It's 10 wells per little piece of paper. And they can, in three of the wells, put in three different concentrations of a, of a specific antibiotic then, and then test 
three antibiotics on the same page and have a control. And then after incubation, which in this case they do in a coffee mug, which is really cool, get a visual readoff on the resistance of this specific sample based on a color change. They test two different dyes in this paper that gives a color change, which will say, you know, if it's resistant or susceptible to that antibiotic. They even kind of have an intermediate, but it's a little bit, if anybody does antibiotic susceptibility testing and with the different standards that we have, it's a bit of a blunt tool kind of compared to some of our other tools, but it's very rapid. They only have to put the sample in the paper once. They put one sample in and it spreads to these 10 wells, which I think is a really cool thing. And it's it's so simple. It's a piece of paper that they then seal and incubate for 10 hours, meaning they put it in a warm place for 10 hours. And I love that they add this commercial product, this coffee mug that's chargeable and it's battery power that lasts for 10 hours, meaning they can carry this around with them where there isn't an electric electricity source. But it can also be charged or on so it works otherwise as well so how how come the paper changes color depending on if they're sensitive or resistant so what they're looking for is bacteria that can basically break down or somehow manipulate this or grow and that there's certain like metabolites Mm -hmm. that are broken down so you basically see this color change based on a breakdown of something in the dye Mm -hmm. and when it's broken down there's a color change and that breakdown is due to if i understood right the growth of the bacteria in these cases so it's basically a color change gives kind of a positive result. Mm-hmm. Like some, there is something growing here. It can grow at this antibiotic concentration. And you were mentioning that this is somewhat a blunter tool than other mm-hmm. kind of uh, resistant testing or susceptibility testing that we might do. You mean that it's more difficult to find a cutoff or like you might have a difficulty on saying resistant sensitive for this particular test? It's a little bit of both. So they can basically only say resistant or sensitive. They can't say like how resistant or how sensitive in that sense, which we can with some other methods. Mm -hmm. They kind of had to scale it for this setting. They couldn't put the same amount of antibiotic on the paper that they would assume would correlate to a certain thing. Like they tested some strains where they knew how resistant, how sensitive they are. And they saw that it didn't really match up. So they kind of had to add quite a bit more antibiotic to this paper Mm-hmm. than what they would have kind of thought based on other methods. But they correlate it. So they kind of found like, well, with this method, these are the numbers we're looking at, and we can still say resistance sensitive. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a bit like they have to fine tune it for particular strains and particular antibiotics. So They did six antibiotics in this mm-hmm. test, and they did uh, 30 different bacterial strains, which included a couple different species, if I understood right, which is a big benefit that can use different things for this. But it does definitely require a bit of fine-tuning of how like how much you add and what. And there's some questions about why they have to add so much more antibiotic. They don't really answer that. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, this is supposed to be a simplified method. And they bring up that, yeah, this is kind of a blunt method. They have some issues with some false negatives, false positives. They try to minimize that with these looking at these two different dyes of what might be most appropriate for what antibiotic and what setting. Uh, and how long they might be able to be stored and whatnot in different settings. They realize that they can actually store them for a short period of time at room temperature, but also then store them for about a month at, at the fridge temperature, which is a really nice extra part. But what I was trying to get to with that is that they do see some false results, mm-hmm. which you do with these kinds of things. We tend to kind of ignore that, but these antibiotic susceptibility testing things, they're not perfect. I think they bring up the WHO aims for a 90% accuracy rate. Mm-hmm. And that's an aim. <laughs> we have some methods that don't reach that. And they talk about, you know, there's some more work that can maybe be done. But it is relatively accurate. I think they mainly ended up at like an 80, 70 to 80, high mm-hmm. 70s to high 80s range of accuracy. Across across samples, right? Across samples, like as an average across samples and with the different diantibiotic combinations and whatnot. I mean, there's like a room for improvement as well, right? Like yeah. first they had a simpler test. Now they've been able to multiplex it. I think it's uh, it's a good progress. And as we were mm-hmm. saying uh, also that it's a very simple method just by a paper-based essay that can be done with an already available mini incubator that is a coffee yeah. mug. And the cost per sample I read as well is yeah. very, very low. It's much lower than the WHO kind of cutoff for cost. It's less than a dollar per sample, which is so low. That is great for low resource yeah. settings as well, together with the fact that they might be at room temperature for some time, at four degrees even more time. Mm-hmm. It makes it a very nice idea for something to be used where nothing else is available. You know, yeah. We are not comparing it with other 
methods that we can do any other place. But if you don't have anything and you are able to supply uh, testing that can give you an idea if you can treat a patient with a particular antibiotic or not, that's a huge improvement in, in my eyes. And I think it's worth mentioning a few things. They do talk about, like, they talk about these errors that they had the major, minor, they kind of class them differently. But I think it's very important that they were really trying to minimize what they call very major errors, Mm -hmm. meaning that they said something was sensitive when it was resistant. So somebody could be treated with an antibiotic that wouldn't work. But other errors were more like, okay, well, they could have been treated with an antibiotic but they didn't know that, so maybe it chose something else. I mean, I think everything is relative, mm-hmm. you know, in these situations, but you, you're trying to minimize the damage, but this is still something that can bring good. They do also mention, however, that this was done with uh, basically bacterial cultures in a lab setting, if I understood. So they haven't really tested this on, like, urine samples, or that's, like, it's, it's, it gets a bit more complicated if we're not going to try to culture mm-hmm. bacteria, which is part of the thought of not maybe doing that. But it's definitely a step in that direction. And if we can combine it, for example, they said combine it maybe with diagnostic testing that's in a similar simple setting, mm-hmm. it's definitely a step in the right direction. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a nice uh, pick of the month, as we call it. Yeah. Uh, very forward thinking and trying to bring, you know, these very necessary, easier ways to measure antibiotic susceptibility all across the world. So with that, I think we should move on to our next news piece, which is about something a little more close to home, I guess we could say. (laughs) So Ava, could you tell us more about this paper? Yeah, definitely. It's uh, close to home because this is a paper that's been published by one of our very recently defended PhD students. And I was very happy to learn that it got accepted right before he defended his thesis, which is always a boost for the student when he's going to get to defend. And I also think the topic is very, very interesting, and it's about a parasite. So to move a little bit away from antibacterials to antiparasitics, and it also brings antivirals in the mix, which is quite cool, right? Yeah, I love it. The title of this paper is Giardia intestinalis thymidine kinase is a high affinity enzyme crucial for DNA synthesis and an exploitable target for drug discovery. Published in the Journal of Biological Chemistry this past 11th of May of this year. To put you in context a little bit about Giardia, you know, this paper, because it's in a paper of biological chemistry, is heavily chemistry-based. But the essence and the outcomes of this paper are beyond just the chemical part of it. But there's a lot of chemistry work done as the base of, of the article as well. Giardia uh, intestinalis is a parasite. It's a parasite that infects a lot of people around the world every year. It creates uh, an intestinal disease that uh, turns out in watery diarrhea and uh, dehydration. And it actually a lot of people around the world also die every year because of this infection. Generally, this infection is treated by a drug called metronidazole, but the drug metronidazole has quite some side effects that can be a little bit severe. And also, more and more, we are finding metronidazole-resistant Giardia strains, which means that there is a need for something else besides metronidazole to be used for these kind of infections. Metronidazole is also used for other things, Metronidazole, which was another work from from this group, before they were able to see that metronidazole works in a lot of different ways. So it's a bit like Mm -hmm. a magic drug of sorts. It goes into the (laughs) cell and it does a lot of things that are not really specific. So it works for a lot of different pathogens. But for Giardia, it's one of the primary treatments. So if we are getting resistance strains, it begs the question, what do we do with those resistance strains? Can we treat them with something else? And now there are other treatments, but it seems to create some sort of cross-resistance with metronidazole-resistant strains. So it's also a problem of like, can we treat them with something else that is available? Yeah. So what they went to is, can we find some sort of thing inside Giardia that is essential that we can use as a target to find new potential uh, inhibitors of the growth and the life cycle of Giardia? And the thing is that Giardia being a, parasite there are a lot of things that Giardia cannot really do by itself but it's dependent on the host to provide those things in order to grow and to be able to infect one of the things are essential metabolites that are needed to make DNA and DNA you need to make it when you replicate so in order to grow and to have the life cycle you need these basic building blocks of the DNA 
to make these basic building blocks does have a particular protein, an enzyme, that can modify what it takes from the host in order to yeah. put it into making the DNA, right? So that's mm. the baseline. So this enzyme, what they do in this paper is to characterize it because apparently it wasn't really known before. This kind of enzymes have been uh, understood and studied in other uh, organisms and especially in humans, but we didn't know so much about the Giardia one. So what they found is that this enzyme, the thymidine kinase, is essential. That means that without it, it cannot really grow. And it's also highly specific. So it only really attaches to the substrate that is supposed to attach in the cell. And it doesn't allow so much for attaching to similar things like other thymidine kinases actually do in other organisms. Yeah, I wanted to ask. It was very specific, almost unheard of. Very specific. The most specific they have found, yeah. I thought that was a really interesting fact. Exactly. It is a very interesting fact. But what they were able to also see is that this enzyme could react and use as a substrate the antiviral drug acetylthymidine. Because acetylthymidine is an analog of the normal thymidine that the thymidine kinase can work with in order to integrate it into the DNA synthesis and the replication. So what they are able to show in vitro first is that the thymidine kinase can metabolize acetylthymidine. I'm going to call it ACT. It can use ACT as a substrate. And when the only analog to thymidine that is given is acetylthymidine, thymidine cannot really get on time. And then basically the DNA replication gets disrupted. So there is no DNA replication. There's no replication of the Giardia. And therefore the infection can be cured. So they're able to show in vitro and also in a small gerville animal model they are able to see that there is an inhibition of the DNA synthesis and there's also a reduced trophozoite formation. And trophozoite is actually the form of the Giardia that comes from the cyst. So if you can change from cyst to trophozoite, that means that then you can infect in the, in the host. So using this analog of the thymidine, they can also potentially reduce the infectivity of the Giardia. So all in all, it's like a great push forward to try to find something new yeah. that can be used for Giardia treatment. And AZT, it's approved already for antiretroviral, you said, but what's, what are other benefits of using AZT? Yeah, exactly. So as you say, the cool thing is that this is not something that has to go through many hurdles of regulation yeah. to bring it back into the market, but also it has reduced side effects compared to using metronidazole. Hmm. So it's even a better drug in that sense to use for Giardia treatment because it has this potential less uh, side effects. Uh, they don't talk yeah. so much about potential resistance or not. I think that's up, up in the air and it needs to be studied a little bit more if using just ACT might you know, create some sort of resistance in the pathogen yeah. or not. But uh, I know in, in antiretroviral therapy, they have to be very careful with the resistance. But I'm trying to think of how that would work in this case, that they have an incredibly specific, I, I'm totally theorizing here, it feels <laughs> like it maybe wouldn't be as much of a problem. Yeah. But no idea. Yeah, but that could be the next steps, right? Now that we have identified this, and we can, yeah. you know, we know it works in vitro, we know that in vivo, it also seems to be working. So now it's like, okay, what could be the potential effects of having Giardia being exposed to ACT for a long time? And can we start maybe, um, of course, trying to use it in some clinical trials with humans to see how it affects potential Giardia treatment and infectivity of Giardia. That could be also very interesting. Although I don't know how they yeah. will test for that. If they give Giardia cysts to people treated and not treated, that would be a bit strange. That feels tough. <laughs> but you can give it uh, to people when they are going to travel to places where it's more likely to get Giardia infections, for example. Yeah, That's also that can be done. Um, so yeah, I, I'm very proud of uh, Sasha's work here. I think it's very interesting. I'm very happy to be talking about something else than just antibiotics. <laughs> for once mm -hmm. because there's much more than that and uh, it's a nice cross between anti like this whole kind of species barrier thing if we're talking about i'm not even species domain variations here between viruses and parasites that similar drugs can maybe be efficient in different settings and like you mentioned i mean as we talked about in the interview as well this issue with regulation so that this can be an easier thing to move along since it's already approved and used in many low resource settings i think if i don't misunderstand that mm -hmm. i think azt is been used in HIV treatment in low resource settings before as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then we can move on to something we kind of mentioned briefly before. So there was a report released recently from the WHO. It was released on the 12th of July this year called Bacterial Vaccines in Clinical and Preclinical Development 2021. 
So Ava, could you tell us a little bit about this report? Yeah, we thought it was uh, important to bring it up here because it's something super recent and it also kind of ties together with the interview that we have featured today. And this yeah. is the first of its kind in-depth overview and analysis of the vaccines that are available or perhaps soon to be available or in the development for AMR pathogens. And I have to say that there are good news and there are also some not so good news yeah. uh, when it comes to the <laughs> conclusions of this report. But overall, what they do is to just go out and see everything that is available or that is being in development and they look at different classes, so things that are already kind of available, things that are in very late stage development, so that means that probably soon they're going to be available to be used. Mm. At least have a high likelihood of success. Yeah, exactly. And then things that are a bit more challenging to maybe get in there, and then things that are not even being taken care of or being looked at or even in the pipeline. And yeah. they do this in the context of the pathogen priority list that the WHO has. So which are the pathogens that have the most burden when it comes to AMR? And then do we have a vaccine? Is there a vaccine in development or do we have to focus on other means of preventing infection and transmission because vaccines don't seem to be a solution that can be available anytime soon. Yeah. So they look in total at 61 vaccine candidates. Several of those are in late stage. Of the six pathogen priority list, there's only one vaccine that works against one of them, and that's for streptococcus pneumonia. And then they also mention, which is important, is that two of the most important pathogens, which is Acinetobacter baumani and Pseudomonas aeruginosa in the priority list, they don't seem to have anything on the pipeline or anything that is going to happen anytime soon. So we have to really focus on other areas of prevention that doesn't have to do with vaccines. But for others, like it could be Salmonella, Paratifi, Neisseria, there are things that are kind of coming up. And I think for Neisseria, gonorrhea, it's very important because it's actually, mm -hmm. it's getting more and more difficult to treat because of resistance uh, happening uh, in yeah. several strains of Neisseria. And one thing that I didn't really know so much is that even though we have a vaccine for tuberculosis, the vaccine doesn't seem to be that good or there is a lot of room for improvement to have a better vaccine yeah. for tuberculosis. I think it's called the BCG vaccine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's definitely not. Most of us think of a vaccine and the, the, the efficacy or the eff effectiveness of a vaccine. That vaccine is not in the, the level that we tend to expect or, mm -hmm. you know, want from a vaccine nowadays. It's it's far from perfect. Yeah. And Personally, I think that's in part accepted because tuberculosis doesn't affect high resource settings in the same way. Just because there is a vaccine doesn't mean that the problem is solved. Yeah. And they also talk about in the case of the pneumococcal vaccine, it's shown to be very successful and very helpful in high resource settings, but it's not used everywhere around the world because it's a complicating issue. So it's not that easy to get to everyone. Yeah. That's another thing that they highlight with this report is the need for a better vaccine coverage around the world, yeah. especially for some of these pathogens that are very high burden in several places in the world. Yeah, especially think about the pneumococcal burden. It's it, like the AMR burden is not really in the places where this vaccine is used yeah. most. So if we're talking about how we can reduce the, the AMR burden using these vaccines, they also really need to get to the places with the highest AMR burden, which tend to be lower resource. Exactly. But they had some interesting candidates, and I think it's nice to see this kind of pipeline analysis and seeing what's... Like, we've done these before sometimes with some um, antibiotic pipelines, but mm -hmm. it's interesting to see this in a vaccine setting. But like you said, also see how many things just aren't there right now. There's nothing right now mm -hmm. for different reasons. Sometimes it's just an incredibly challenging biology to, exactly. to get to these. I was uh, thinking, you know, like, because sometimes there are very specific strains that are the yeah. the, co the cause of really the disease. You know, we have bacteria that different strains are actually even part of our normal microbiota. So developing something that is so highly specific to work as a as a immunoprophylactic agent, you know, like a vaccine yeah. that it just your body is prepared to, you know, deal with it. Mm -hmm. It must be incredibly hard biologically speaking. Yeah, I know? was thinking about that the list is I haven't read the whole report. I have to say that I read mainly the summary. They talked about E. coli vaccines in the pipeline and some that are pretty far along. 
One of them was ETEC, which is a specific kind of E. coli that carries a specific toxin, mm-hmm. which I can kind of understand that. But the other one that they're talking about was, is what we call um, XPEC. So basically not in the intestine, like it's kind of outside of where it's usually supposed to be. And I thought, how do you do that? Like, I really want to look into this later. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you target? It's not just targeting the thing. It's basically targeting maybe a property of ones that tend to mm-hmm. be able to cause infections outside of the intestinal tract, but also just how do you target something that's specifically in a vaccine? So I, I can understand that some of these are incredibly challenging, but it's really nice to see the work that's been done in this kind of summarizing way and see that there are some helpful candidates along the line. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I was thinking for also for pseudomonas, that would be such a benefit because pseudomonas treatments once established are very hard to treat. Yeah. Yeah, and pseudomonas also has a lot of problem in chronically sick patients. Yeah, especially cystic fibrosis patients. That would be a huge benefit. Yeah. So I guess it's just an open door opportunity for people out there to try to, you know, work on this. That is very needed yeah. and there is a space for it in particular. Of Definitely. course, that's <laughs> well, there's always something else to do, right? Hmm. Jenny, that we made it this far yeah. so far 40 episodes 40 episodes <laughs> not counting our special ones so that's true more than 40 for, then but 40 regular episodes for everyone out there either you're new or you're being with us for some time or even from the very very beginning we just want to thank you for your time for listening to us oh yeah absolutely for learning uh, at the same time as we learn as well and see you of course on the next episode bye everyone see you then For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. <laughs>